Well, this is the first time that I've preached with this Bible since I had an unfortunate accident last week. That sounds cryptic, doesn't it? But what happened was that I was on my way to staff meeting. I packed all my stuff in my bag as usual, arrived at the building, opened up my bag to get the Bible out. The Bible is uh, an essential piece of kit at Trinity Church staff meeting. You'll be pleased to hear. And what I found when I opened uh, my bag, and in fact, when I reached my hand into it, was an immediate feeling of moisture. And I fumbled around in the bag a little bit, and I found this bottle. Uh, but unfortunately, I didn't find all of this bottle. I, I found that the, uh, the head, the, the cap, if you like, had been severed from the rest of the bottle. And that water had flown out all over my precious Bible, uh, all over my book and everything else that was in the bag. It, it, it was tough to carry on as if nothing had happened, but I... I displayed a stiff upper lip and uh, discovered afterward what I'd need to do to try and salvage this precious book that I've had for the last almost seven years since I was given it on my 30th birthday. Now in the end, I got over the shock of this you know, relatively minor offense and began to think about how I could take this as a positive. So I, I thought about how this was an opportunity to uh, become less attached to the world of things and products and uh, material things and to focus my devotion on God in a deeper way. I, I began to think about how this could train me in the idea that nothing in life is perfect, not even my special leather-bound Bible. But more uh, recently, maybe in the last few days, I've begun to think of this occasion as an example of what I'd actually like to see happening in these days in the church. When it comes to the Bible, but actually more broadly, when it comes to Christian faith and devotion. Isn't the problem with the Bible, and in fact with Christianity, that most people perceive it to be dry and dusty? A place where there's no moisture, a place where there's no water, a place of boredom, if you like. And in fact, those of us who've read the Bible, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, we know that's not true, and yet that is the perception that so many people have. The problem is not with the Scripture. The problem is not with God. The problem often is on our side. We lack, when we come to uh, God's Word, we lack the expectation that God has the ability and the authority to meet with us today through scripture. I remember hearing the story John Wimber shared uh, years ago, and some of you have heard that name. He's an important person in my life, even though I never met him, but I've been discipled by some of his disciples, and I heard the story as a young man of, of Wimber uh, having radically been saved, coming to church for the first time and hearing the, the pastor give a flawless exposition from the Bible, a Wimber coming to the pastor at the, end of the, um, at the end of the sermon and saying, amazing word, pastor. When do we get to do the stuff? The pastor was like, the stuff? What do you mean, the stuff? What was it, the stuff you talked about in the message? When do we get to do that? You know, the healing and the deliverance, all that stuff. When do we get to play our part in that? And the pastor said, we don't do the stuff. We just read about it. We've been in a series in Luke's Gospel for the last little while. And we've been looking at Jesus' public ministry, the beginning of it, and specifically Jesus' manifesto. 
where he declares his intent to the world. This is the kind of Messiah I'm going to be. This is the kind of leader I'm going to be. And as I said, it's drawn from Isaiah 58 and 61, passages about justice and about deliverance, about life being released to the people of God, through the people of God, to the whole world. It is an incredibly powerful manifesto, a vision for change. That was Jesus' plan. But what makes Jesus different to almost every other worldly leader is that he's not just good at making plans, but he's able to fulfill them and carry them out. And the word for that ability to do what he said is authority. This is what we read. Then he went down to Capernaum a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. His words stood out. They had pop. They had power. They were spoken with passion, but they just had a weight to them that made them distinct from the words of the other people, the other religious leaders apart. Jesus did what he always did. He went to the, uh, the synagogue. He began to teach. And whereas last time we saw that there was amazement because of his gracious words, his skillful rhetoric, his ability to communicate articulately and pithily. This time, the amazement has to do with his authority. And there's a couple of things going on here. Authority because he didn't just draw on other people's teaching. He wasn't just bringing out the hackneyed phrases that other people had been speaking about for generations. But it was something more than that. One scholar said this, No hint in the text points to a particular mode of argumentation. Rather, Jesus' authority is grounded in the power of the Spirit. So the authority Jesus had, according to this scholar, is not that he was good at speaking, that he was articulate. Authority with Jesus had all to do with power. It was about the fact that his life and his teaching and everything about him was grounded in the power of God. Reading that, how does that make you feel? Maybe like me, you feel... Hungry, you feel grateful, you feel awed, you feel full of wonder. You feel amazed, like those listeners, but maybe also you feel uncomfortable. Because maybe like me, when you think of your own life, when you think of your own walk of discipleship, when you think of the church of which you're a part and the church in our nation, when you think about the church in the West, the first word that comes to your mind and your heart isn't authority. Maybe it's something else. And I have to say, I feel when I hear that word, I, I feel uncomfortable. I feel disappointed. I feel disappointed because I yearn and I long for what Wimber said. I, I want to do the stuff. But so often I just get caught in the humdrum of worldly life. Step by step in the world moving forward without uh, an imminent sense of the presence of God without the fire of God touching me in the core, without the transformative experience that comes from knowing God and being known by him. I don't carry his authority. And I tell you this, my deepest desire and yearning is to carry the authority that Jesus carried. When I look at the church, I see a church in which authority is in short supply. I'm not saying there's none. 
I'm just saying that there's not enough. We have so much going for us in the church today. We have access to great teaching and theology. We have an almost endless stream of incredible worship music. You could string together a new album of amazing worship songs every day and you still would not reach the end. We have technology to communicate the gospel message that Whitfield and Wesley and the Apostle Paul and St. Augustine and everyone in between would have longed for. We look cooler than ever, present company not included. We sound relatively relevant and engaging. Our buildings and resources are in place. We have plans, we have pathways, programs, strategies. We have the right branding. We have sexy social media. We have hip language. Hip, is that still a word? We're good to go. But we lack the one thing we need the most. We don't have authority. And we need to admit it. It doesn't pay to deny it. We don't gain authority by shouting louder. And we will not gain authority by blaming the people we're ministering to for not having enough faith. What if we're meant to smell of the shepherd? What if we're meant to carry the authority of Jesus? I think we are. Look at the disciples. They're not perfect like my water-soaked Bible. They're not perfect. They're broken. They make mistakes regularly. And yet what we see in the scriptures is that they do carry authority. They are able to speak with the dialect of the king. You yearn for that? You want that? I know you do. We all want that. That's what we came to Jesus for, to become like him and to do the things he did as we encounter him. What's gone wrong? Because I contend to you today, something's gone wrong. What's gone wrong? Where have we missed a trick? I'm drawn to the words of Jeremiah in chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns. Cisterns which cannot hold water. Broken cisterns which cannot hold water. I think the problem we have at least in the church in the West, is a problem of disordered worship. I don't mean that the band don't sound good. Weren't they amazing today? I mean, the Spirit of God just fell as soon as we were just led into worship. I'm talking about something deeper than that. I'm talking about human hearts. I'm talking about our goals as the church. I'm talking about worship. I'm talking about idolatry. Was it Luther or Calvin that said, Calvin, I'm guessing, the heart is an idol factory. And we have this problem today in the Church of the West, and largely speaking, it's undiagnosed. And any sickness, any malady that's undiagnosed is not able to be treated. But I just want to tell you today that what I see around us in the West, in the church, and in this country, is a cult of celebrity. We've set up a paradigm of church in which individual human beings are placed on platforms and treated as if they're gods. And we call it honor. But we speak much more about honoring leaders than we do honoring the poor, honoring the elderly, honoring the sick. What if the recent conversations about race are 
an example, a manifestation of the Spirit of God moving powerfully to correct an inappropriate honor and to remind us of how there are people, whole swathes of our society who have existed under the radar without honor. In fact, living in dishonor. What if the honor of man has thrown shade upon the honor of Christ? What about worship? How have we turned this most pure and precious gift, the presence of God, into an industry? How have we commoditized the holy? And yet we have. We have humans, churches, movements competing for celebrity, for popularity, for money. And many of us leaders, and I believe this fault and flaw starts with people like me, with leaders. Many of us leaders have preferred programs and platforms to presence and prayer. We see widespread conformity. It's not just people like me. I believe this is all of us. I believe that uh, so often when we look at our goals for discipleship, they're so much like the worldly goals. We, we long for more security in our finance. We long for a good pension, a comfortable home, a reasonably comfort, comfortable retirement for health and wealth. And some of us have even gone after a gospel of health and wealth, which is no gospel at all. These are not bad things in and of themselves. Sometimes they can be a manifestation of God's hand and favor upon our lives. But they were never supposed to be the goal. When Jesus said, let everyone who wants to come after me take up their, deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me, he wasn't thinking of a people obsessed with comfort. You know, during the pandemic, I've seen the church respond alongside the world with a natural desire to protect life at all costs. Now, life is valuable. We believe because of the fact the image of God is on and in us all, in the sanctity and dignity of every life. We shouldn't throw lives away. And yet, the message, I believe that we're missing and have missed almost entirely our opportunity to preach a different message. The message that there is no need to fear death if your life is surrendered to the one who overcame death. We live lives which are just as hurried, just as anxious, just as medicated and as numbed as the world. We consume food, entertainment, drink, and other people in just the same ways as the world around us. How many of us spend more time on our phones than we do in the secret place in prayer? We pursue as individuals, as leaders, I am, I am so culpable in this. As movements, denominations, we pursue relevance and respectability above obedience. Time and again, I, I hear people say that the church needs to be relevant to the culture. In time, movements exist with a mission to show people that Christians aren't irrelevant or sad. Good? Well, yes, in part. If we're trying to create connections to people so that we might win them for Christ, I understand that impulse. But when that value becomes the vision, we have erred significantly. There is no hope at that point of keeping God at the heart. Because every time we have a choice between being relevant or being obedient, we'll choose relevance. And sometimes obedience means foolishness. Often, obedience means foolishness. If you don't believe me, read the book. How many of the heroes of the Bible are men and women who look relevant? What do we want? What do we want? We have to decide. Do we want to be approved of by the world? Do we want to be approved of by God? 
is our greatest vision of discipleship for our friends to say, he's a Christian, you know, but he's a decent bloke. He's not sad or weird. Or is our vision for discipleship to arrive before Jesus on the last day and to hear him say, well done, son, good and faithful servant. Do we want to have a life of relevance or do we want a life soaked in the authority and power of God? We cannot have both. I contend to you today that what the world most needs is not a church on Instagram, but a church on fire. Not a church obsessed with the culture and what it's doing, but a church obsessed with God and what he is doing. And you might say to me, and you'd be right, they're not mutually exclusive. We can have both. We can. But only if our intent and our hearts are postured first on him and only on him. But I don't want you to lose hope. (laughs) I've put the stick away, okay? Here comes the carrot. God is moving. God is at work. God is moving among us. Right now, I want to tell you two stories. This from a member of our congregation just this last week. She says, last Saturday I was in a bar in Nottingham with some friends. A bar! Yes, a bar. My friend's mum shared a story with us about someone being healed from cancer. It was a powerful story that reminded me that God is a miracle worker. As my friend's mum was sharing the story, I was feeling the presence of God in the room. The room, folks, was a bar. The room, folks, wasn't a church. We can't go in those. We can go in baths. I soon realized it wasn't just me. Tears started to fall from our faces and the Spirit of God started to move in our group. My friend said that he could feel God's hand on him. So we began to pray for him. We began to pray for him. God was speaking into his life. Another friend who was with us, who was new to hearing about Jesus, was touched by all that was going on in the room. So we asked if she would like prayer. Not a Christian, not a churchgoer. She's feeling the Spirit of God working. Do you want prayer? was the question. She said yes, it was the first time she'd ever been prayed for. God, as God does, poured out his love on each of us and on our friend. My friend's dad spoke a few simple words over me. And it was exactly what I needed to hear at the time. It was God speaking directly through him to me. It's God's kindness that he would show up even when I least expect it. What an amazing story. Spirit of God falling in a bar, drenching a group of people, encompassing people who know Jesus and people who don't yet know Jesus, leading people into the throne room of God before they even know the name Jesus, before they even know the songs, before they've even heard the teaching or the theology, because that's how God is. That's what God does. What about this story? I love this story. One mum wrote this to me about her interaction with her seven-year-old son. She said this, we were reading a kid's book about prayer. By the way, that's what we do with our children. We disciple them. That's what we do. That's what she was doing. He told me he didn't think he was very good at hearing God's voice. I said, everyone thinks of that. They do, don't they? And you just have to practice. So then he went to bed and we listened to the Examine podcast together. Halfway through, he said, mom, you need to leave me now. If I want to hear from God, I need to do this on my own. I tucked him in and left him and, and went to my hub online. We prayed for him at the end of our call. Now, meanwhile, they're in the hub meeting. And then I, uh, I've got this first-hand testimony from uh, the leaders of the hub. This is what happened from their perspective. We were in the hub meeting. We began to pray for this boy. And as we did, one of the children, one of our children, 
suddenly appeared as we were praying, crying, having had a dream. A child said that he dreamt that God was speaking to him and then that God showed him a group of angels in his mind within his dream. He then woke, knowing that God wanted to speak to him, but saying he was afraid to open his eyes because he knew there was a massive angel in the corner of the room. He said he was so scared and not ready yet to see and hear what God wanted to say. His mother naturally tried to calm him and said something about the fact that it must have been a nightmare uh, and that he shouldn't be worried, but he was adamant. He said, Mom, it wasn't a nightmare. This was God. This wasn't a bad dream, but I am afraid. God wants to speak to me, Mom, and I don't feel like I'm ready. His mom realized, because she's spiritually attentive, that this was authentic. They spoke about God, they spoke about angels, and they prayed together. Back to the first young man. The next day, uh, his mom asked him if he'd heard anything, but not to worry if he hadn't. He said, no, not so much. But I did hear one thing really clearly. I think it was God. He told me that lots of what we've created distracts us from him. Seven-year-old. If I had a mic, I would drop it. What if the move of God we've been crying out for and praying for these years is upon us? But what if it doesn't look like we expected? What if God is moving from the margins? What if God is moving in the midst of the pubs the prisons, amongst the children, amongst those who are just willing to be desperate, willing to be fools. What if we are in an age when God again is saying, I'm going to choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the things which are not to reduce to nothing, things which are, so that no one might boast in God's presence. I believe that's what he's doing. I think God has had enough of our obsession with power, influence, platforms, And so he's just getting on with it himself amongst the children and in the pubs. And the question then for us as the church, what do we do? How might we get in on this? How might we taste and see that he's good, share in this? Well, firstly, we have to recognize. We have to recognize that this is what he's doing. We have to be open to say, I haven't walked as I should have. My worship is divided. We have to be willing to take that step. I'm willing to do that, are you? I'm willing to do that, to, re- to recognize. But secondly, once we've recognized, we have to repent. Jeremiah says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me and they've built their own systems. Church, fill in the systems, throw rubble in the systems, blow up the systems, tear down the idols. Is this not partly what God's doing? We're not able to gather. We're not able to stand on the platforms we've been used to. Maybe this is God saying, I just want you to begin again. I want to just start again. Start afresh. We have to recognize and we must repent. And repentance looks like surrender. You're not going to hear a different message from us anytime soon. It's repentance. It's devotion. It's surrender. These are the postures for this day. What the prophet Isaiah says is for us today. God says through him, this is the one to whom I will look, the one who's humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. Church, I believe that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to repent. I believe that the kingdom of heaven is at 
hand right now. I believe that God is close, that his kingdom is available, available now. I believe that what we have right now is a window, a window of opportunity, a kairos moment to come home, to repent. There are things that God is judging in and amongst us. There are ways and patterns of behavior and lifestyle uh, that God is, is judging, his judgments are moving upon us. And I believe that's good news because it gives us the opportunity to return home and it gives us an opportunity to come to him, to ask him for the thing we most want, we most need, authority and intimacy, devotion, dedication. And it comes through surrender and it comes through repentance. Why don't we pray?